I'm Robert Bomander, and I am a Big Ear Birder, and this is the Big Ear Radio Network, and this is the Big Ear Podcast, broadcasting from our worldwide headquarters in my basement studio in Brantford, Ontario, Canada, just a little southwest of Toronto, a city in Canada you may be more familiar with. Welcome to episode three of my fledgling podcast. Like a baby bird that's trying to take flight into a larger world, here I am talking to some of the best big year birders ever. For those of you unfamiliar with a big year, it is a 365-day obsessive and often grueling adventure to see as many birds as possible in a given region. The granddaddy of all big years is the ABA big year. But birders do smaller areas like their local county, state, or provincial big year areas. In Ontario last year, three birders broke the all-time record. Today's episode was to feature Kaya Jasper, but due to technical difficulties that were completely in my control and for which I bear full responsibility and should be sacked for, my interview with Kaya Jasper will have to wait until the next episode. Sorry, Ontario birders. Today's episode features Christian Havenlocker, who... In 2016, following in the footsteps of Ken Kaufman and Greg Miller, did a 2016 ABA Big Year on a Budget. Christian is an educator and author of the book The Falcon Freeway, an homage to the title of Ken Kaufman's book Kingbird Highway. I met Christian back in 2016 when he was doing his ABA Big Year, and I was doing a smaller Birds and Blue Jays Big Year. We were in the middle of nowhere on a cold winter's day, searching for a barnacle goose. Neither of us saw the goose that day, and we both continued on with our respective big years, finally reconnecting in 2022. Though we both were in Florida at the same time for a Zendaya dove and didn't know it. It was fun to catch up with Christian, who lives in Washington State, and see how doing a big year at the age of 26 was able to set the foundation for his future successes. Join me now, won't you, as we chat with Christian Hagenlocker. Welcome to the Big Year Podcast with my special guest, Christian Hagenlocker, who I met in the middle of nowhere in 2016 on a very cold day, and the two of us were searching the countryside, farmer's fields, and everywhere we could find for a barnacle goose, and I didn't find it that day. Christian, did you find the barnacle goose that day, or at least sometime later in the year? I did find it later that year. I was not successful at that time, though. Thanks for having me on the show, Robert. It's great to be here. I appreciate you stopping by. I met you, as I said, in 2016, and you were talking about doing a big year on a budget, and that is something I've had to do uh, a few times with no budget and with a full-time job, but you had the entire year free to do as you pleased, and how did that come about? You know, birding is, is a hobby that can really be enjoyed by anyone, regardless of their income. However, like you mentioned, it does kind of trend towards people that have time, which I think is the biggest asset. And then money probably comes in next, the ability and privilege that comes with being able to travel. Um, I actually lost my job shortly before January 2016. So I was filming different birds for a, a small wildlife cinematography company out of Montana. And I'd seen some birds and was kind of chasing some of the rarities that were around North America by car, sleeping in my car to keep our expenses low on this kind of filming scouting trip and then when I realized I didn't have a job any longer with this gentleman I decided well I'll kind of finish the month on my savings and see how many birds I can find and at that point I'd seen uh, about 360 species by the end of January so 
so it was a good foundation to start from. I recognized the position I was in and had to spend the whole month of February working to earn money to keep me going through March. And I applied for some sponsorships. I came up with this idea of the birding project, Mm -hmm. which was the alias of my big year, which built on a foundation of education, preservation, conservation, and inspiration. So I kind of came up with a cause, which by interviewing birders and sharing their stories on my blog, rather than just recounting my successes and shortcomings as missing birds or finding rare birds, I tried to start the year focused on other birders, and that really was a solid platform that birders all over the country and the world really got behind and were interested in. So I was fortunate to kind of have this momentum that turned into a community effort of sharing information and helping me by giving me places to stay or teaming up with me and birding with me when I was in their local patch. So I benefited from a lot of local knowledge and generous birders. And I was able to kind of keep that momentum going throughout the year until I hit 700 in August. And after that, everything on top of that was just gravy. You're following in the footsteps of Ken Kaufman and Greg Miller, I'm sure, who probably were inspirations to you as far as uh, birding on a budget and birding with few resources. Most definitely. I'd, I'd say Ken Kaufman was a huge inspiration in reading his book, King Bird Highway. It kind of started me mulling over the idea of what would a big year on a budget look like now in mm-hmm. the 21st century, where highways are now freeways, mm-hmm. um, and that, that kind of inspired me to brainstorm the title Falcon Freeway, which ended up being the the title of my book. And I went to Ken partway through the year when I was in Ohio and and birded with him and asked him for his blessing over a kind of similar (laughs) title that really was an ode to uh, Kingbird Highway and and his efforts to bring the birding community together and become a person that other people look to as a role model and an example. And I think that hopefully through my actions and, and my mission uh, in terms of educating others and sharing birds with other people. I found that that's a role that I'm slowly growing into in the birding community as well. So I'm very grateful. And that's actually a, a role that I am starting to fulfill here in Canada. And I have enjoyed the help of the Canadian community in getting me rare birds across the country. And now I'm starting to work with kids. And in a couple of weeks, I'm doing my first bird seminar and doing a bird feeder build with kids. And I take what I've learned as a birder who didn't start until the age of 51 and encourage kids to get into birding and let them know that big years are possible and they don't have to be the grand North American big year. They can be big years in their backyard if that's all they can do. Exactly. When did you start just being interested in looking at birds and identifying them? And then when did you get the birding bug to become a birder? Sure. So both of those experiences that I detail in my book, Falcon Freeway, with my grandmothers, both influencing me in various ways at a very young age. I was taken out to help fill the bird feeders. You can see by my air quotes, I was too young to actually do anything. (laughs) I accompanied my grandmother filling her her backyard bird feeder and seeing blue jays and cardinals. So I grew up knowing kind of the basic backyard uh, birds of New England. And then my other grandmother in Seattle had peregrine falcons nesting on her skyscraper that she worked in. Oh, way cool. For me, that that was a cool bird. That was a sexy bird. And as a as a 12 year old seeing the fastest 
animal on the planet just mm-hmm. right through a, a giant panoramic window sitting on a ledge eating a city pigeon. That was the, the coolest experience I could have, which really turned me from, a, oh, birds are neat, I know them, to I, I want to learn everything I can and see every bird that I can. And so that's when really the passion kicked in, and I started combining the, the limited travel I was doing. My dad was an airline pilot, so I was, I'd fly on trips uh, over my school breaks with my family and see a greater roadrunner in Arizona and just kind of enjoy the birds that I'd always read about or I'd seen in my bird book and actually enjoy the challenge and reward of finding them in real life and just observing them and seeing a bird that was a painting or a photograph in my book come to life and watch its behavior. That was really a special thing for me. And how did you get into education? Well, I had some great mentors growing up and sometimes I I think my greatest mentors were the one that saw my passion and wanted me to share that with others. So I had a fourth grade teacher who before we went to a sleepaway camp in western Washington, she asked me if I'd like to teach the class about birds, uh, the birds that we would encounter on this trip. And one of my friend's mothers was a science teacher at a local high school, and she had a freezer full of dead birds that they used in their biology class. And who doesn't have a freezer full of dead birds, really? (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I I packed a a cooler with her permission (laughs) full of all these different native uh, Western Washington birds and brought what I called birdsicles in my <laughs> fourth grade classroom and taught all these identification features from these dead specimens and really brought birds up close and personal to my classmates. You brought them and to life that, with dead birds. <laughs> right. And a lot of those, a lot of my peers saw the birds better that day than they actually did at the camp hiking around the Olympic Peninsula. But It was really cool to be empowered to be able to teach at a young age. That's been a platform that I've always been given, and so it's come naturally to me to share my love of birds with other people. So I became a teacher in college, was a teacher's assistant for ornithology, and ended up starting to teach the class and get paid to do that. And then after I graduated college, I started teaching high school science and marine biology. And then after that, I just have kept teaching And uh, I've taught high school, and now I currently teach middle school in Seattle. And I think it's important for to just set the context uh, to understand the the environment that I'm teaching in. I I teach in a in a private school, so Mm -hmm. it's not public school, and I teach in in a pretty affluent area of Seattle. And so, while we have a wide diversity of students from a wide variety of economic backgrounds, I would say a lot of the misconceptions that are parroted on certain news networks are not believed or thoughts that are widely held in my geography of where I'm at. As a birder, you obviously did your big year with uh, an intent uh, to educate and to inspire. And as far as the experience of doing it, what are maybe the top two or three things that you experienced while traveling? What were a couple of the really great things that you did that you thought, I could never have done this without doing a big year? Oh, what a great question. I've, I don't know if I've been asked that before. What comes to mind right off the bat is in 2016 and then three years later, I had the opportunity to visit Atu again. So mm-hmm. I've, I've birded Atu twice, which holds its place in North American birding lore. Yes, it and does. And soon probably birding history due to the 
gone out to anymore. So that's that's really become a, a destination of the past, or I think it's quickly becoming a destination, uh, a historical birding destination rather than somewhere birders could just decide to go to and go do it. So it's, it's very different than the old days. But I would say that experience of traveling really to one of the furthest places in North America that you can get to realistically and staying on the boat. Um, essentially, it's a three-day pelagic trip mm-hmm. over open ocean passages between volcanic Aleutian Islands. So we saw sperm whale, orcas, albatross, um, just the marine life mm-hmm. out in that part of the world was incredible. The topography, the landscape, the wildness, that's really a part of North America that is truly wild, where help is days away, not minutes away with a fire station or local mm-hmm. uh, medical helicopter at, at your disposal. So it's really it's remote, wild, dangerous, enthralling, and just being there even if there were no birds, was an experience of itself. Walking the, the shores of Hattu where thousands of people lost their lives mm-hmm. in the Second World War yeah. and being on a historical battlefield and still finding um, shell casings and tank treads and Marsden matting from when the airplanes had to land on this really spongy tundra. I just started the book that Mark Obmasek wrote uh, about the history of that. He detailed it a little bit in the big year, but now he did a full book, which I'm... Just started. The Storm on Our Shores. Yes, it's a well-written book and tells the history of that that place spectacularly. So I, I loved going to Atu. I'd say that was one of the highlights from my big year for sure. Was there another trip that you did that opened your eyes to just the, in, the enormity of the country? I would say just the act of driving across the continent. Mm-hmm. So many people fly over so much of the United States in their travel to different destinations, whether they're visiting relatives or whether they're visiting well-known birding hotspots. But people fly to the lower Rio Grande Valley in mm. South Texas, and there's really just amazing landscapes, beautiful ranches. The King Ranch mm-hmm. is one many birders know of, but in West Texas, I've, I've driven to the lower Rio Grande Valley from California or Arizona several times. So crossing White Sands National Monument uh, in New Mexico, driving across Arizona, driving across West Texas, there's really just so much uh, land and animals and birds and oil and gas development and immigration issues and little kind of middle of nowhere towns that have people with real lives and real jobs that are working there that my eyes were opened up to having stopped at those gas stations and talking with those locals and asking permission from people to drive beyond the gate and see what birds they had on their properties. Those were really neat connections and experiences that I was able to have driving versus just flying over those places that most birders that are jet setters Mm -hmm. never see. I had the same experiences uh, driving across Canada this year as well. And you don't realize how much empty land there is. It's South Texas and Arizona and California, I've driven through all of those as well. It's just amazing for me to uh, experience that. And you had a whole year of uh, doing that yourself. And I can see why that was so amazing for you. But now let's get to the birds because that's... Uh, what we birders do, we chase rare birds, and there are moments of euphoria when you get the rarest bird you've ever seen, and 
There are moments of high disappointment when you've traveled hours and hours to get to a bird and have missed it by a couple of minutes. There's so many birds that I miss. <laughs> and really, I, I don't remember the misses just mm -hmm. because there's something special about not seeing a bird, and that's the contentment that comes with knowing that you're going to see it again somewhere. One of the things that I always keep in my mind when I do miss a bird is that just think of how much more excited you'll be when you finally do see it. I've taught myself over the years is to just let the misses slide off my back and just go for the next bird. Have, exactly. I'm assuming you had a lot of lifers during the year, but what, yeah. what, what birds were like at the top of your list that you were chasing that really made getting to them the most satisfying? I'd say one of the, the top birds for me was a northern hawk owl. And most uh, U.S. birders either go to Saxembog in northern Minnesota to see hawk owls and great gray owls and a lot of kind of the boreal birds. And, and that's the destination almost every big year birder goes to in January or February or March. I've been to there. find those birds. And is that where you got your hawk owl? No, it's not. So I made an effort to try and break the stereotypes, to try and go different places for the birds that a lot of people assume that you go to. And mm -hmm. so I, I visited Saxon Bogdan in the summertime, and that's where I got my Connecticut warbler and morning warbler and uh, yellow-bellied flycatcher, and it was really fun to see a place that I'd read about and heard in birding lore, but in a completely different season. So I tried to turn things like that upside down on their heads, and mm -hmm. I ended up finding a northern hawk owl driving the Glen Allen Highway in just outside of Palmer, Alaska. This year and last year, we've had the stellar sea eagle in North America, and I'm wondering if you got to see it. I've seen stellar sea eagle in Attu before. So okay, so that I, wasn't I, a, as big a deal for you. No, so that I, I totally understand other people's excitement, and it's a fantastic bird. It's so out of range and rare that seeing one in anywhere in North America is, is uncommon, and I was excited to see it in western Alaska when it could be that same individual you know? <laughs> it's and then showed up in texas and i i didn't chase that and after my big year i my goal is to see one new aba species each year mm -hmm. and i've managed to make that happen through some of my big year misses probably my my the miss that hurt the most during 2016 i tried twice and never saw a ross's gull and so that was in barrow which was renamed in 2016 back to its Inupiat name of Utkiagvik. And that means the place where snowy owls are hunted. Mm. And I had a flight attendant friend who graciously um, traveled there with me so I wouldn't have to pay. And we, we flew up to Barrow from Seattle and looked twice for Ross's gulls. We didn't see them either time, but we did see polar bears. Mm -hmm. And they harvested a, a bowhead whale in Utkiagvik. And we were part of the, the ceremony that took place after the whale was landed and cut up, so I was able to uh, partake in eating that whale with some of the villagers and learn a lot about the cultural importance of whaling mm -hmm. to to the village there and the indigenous uh, Alaskans that that still are allowed to legally hunt whales. So I did see a, a Ross's gull this past year. So this last year was my bears and no bears big year, <laughs> which took me to the Arctic. Mm -hmm. to find Ross's gull specifically. So I went back to Alaska this time with my wife, who I wasn't engaged to. I didn't even know her in 2016. So that's one of the, the many blessings I've had.
had since my big year, but I'm married now and was really excited to take her and show her a, a place that was special to me in my 2016 travels. So we went up to Barrow and saw many Rasa skulls, <laughs> which was great redemption and mm -hmm. fulfilled my, my tick for my new ABA species for 2022. And uh, yeah, so I've managed to continue to see birds and slowly get the ones that I've missed and take advantage of rarities that have shown up close to me. Pacific like Northwest the, is the, a great place for that, isn't it? It is, yeah. So the, the whooper swan this year was a fun bird to see just uh, a short drive from my house. That was uh, my biggest disappointment during my Canada Big Year last year was missing the whooper swan by a day in Vancouver. I'm wondering if that's the same whooper swan that was traveling around or do you think there's more than one it's possible there's more than one but i'm uh birds birds travel and have wings and so i'd say with a, a rarity like that which hasn't been seen in a number of years and then there's kind of a a string of a couple of years with a handful of sightings mm -hmm. in the migratory waterfowl species so chances are it's it crossed the bering strait um from russia with a group of trumpeter tundra swans and mm. has made its way down through canada now to washington and it's wintering here just like it did last year so i i'd like to believe that it's the the same bird and hopefully more birders will have the opportunity as it makes its way north in the spring and if it lives and comes back hopefully it'll be enjoyed for years to come everyone i've talked to that has a spouse talks about the difficulty from the family's point of view of someone doing a big year and being home, being away from home for a couple hundred days during the course of the year. You weren't obviously engaged or married and hadn't met your future wife at the time, but was there a family situation that was harder for you or did it make it easier for you because you were single and traveled anyway? That's a great question. So with my dad being a pilot and before that in the military, mm -hmm. um, Compassion for 
for any birding spouse or significant other or partner who's dealing with their their loved one being gone and understanding that you know birds can can take up a, a huge amount of your time effort and mental energy when when listing or doing a big year or trying to become a better birder it's it's consuming and I was able to get that out of my system in 2016 and mm. learn a lot and see a lot of birds which allowed me to be fully present in my current relationship and I have a fantastic story and have been able to share that with my wife so she has a glimpse into who I was at that time mm-hmm. and uh, she's very grateful that she married the man who she knows now <laughs> who and... are, are an interest but a very controlled and balanced part of my life so I'm not a compulsive lister I don't I don't pull what they do in the big year movie which is the the lying and leaving the hospital right before <laughs> um you know a doctor's appointment to go chase a snowy owl so yeah. that's not yeah. my mo yeah and uh, though uh though sandy Camito wasn't particularly like that uh, there are birders uh, that that event was based on and uh that do yes. that and would you say that you would do it again if your spouse gave you permission or are you at the point where you're happy to get that one bird a year now that's a, a great question so i've i'm kind of as a birder i've enlarged my scope from focusing on the birds that i grew up learning about in my bird book of mm. north america and now i'm learning about birds of the world and mm. so while i have no desire to try and cram a lifelong journey into a single year, although mm-hmm. I admire Archwan and Noah Stryker and some of the other world big year birders. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that's just not how I roll. There's so much more that I can experience in a lifetime of birding around the world rather than trying to fit it all into one year. So the world's my playground, and I, I'm actively saving money and prioritizing global travel and birding on those trips. And Fortunately, my wife is also a traveler and an adventurer mm-hmm. and a nature lover. She's not a birder, but she's learned how to love and appreciate the birds because she knows that's a part of how I find joy in travel. Mm-hmm. And so it's something that we're able to do together, even though her level of passion is different than my degree. This year, I, I prioritize getting to Antarctica and seeing different penguin species. And so I, I took that trip uh, over the, the December and January time frame and just got back um, last month. And then this next summer, I'll visit my seventh continent and go birding in Australia. And how did you do the trip, the Antarctica trip? Because I know there are many tours that go there. Yes, yeah, so I, I partnered with an organization out of the UK, a travel agency, that I told them that the time of my school break and said, here's the dates. I'm looking for a trip that mm-hmm. fits this budget and can go um, to Antarctica and back during this time frame. And they found a trip through one of their partner companies that met that criteria. Mm-hmm. And uh, I signed up and went and found a friend of mine, a birder friend, to split the costs. We shared a cabin together, so that mm-hmm. made it cheaper. And then I had a, a birding buddy on board, and we went flew to Ushuaia, got on a ship, and sailed across the Drake Passage, visited the Antarctic Peninsula for a few days, and then sailed back across the Drake Passage and flew home. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Where else around the world have you traveled to that has made a big impact on you? Well, the the Neotropics is just a special place, and you know that from your your travels to Panama. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and I, I'm a mountain person, so I've grown up and around mountains and spent a lot of time in the mountains. So anywhere with uh, mountain ecosystems and alpine tundra is just a, a beautiful place that my heart is happy. So I've, I've spent time in Mongolia, up mm-hmm. in the Altai Mountains in western Mongolia, and while the, the species richness isn't super high, just the quality of the birds there is. So there's not a ton of different species, but they're just really beautiful endemic birds to be found in Mongolia. Um, the Peruvian Andes is spectacular, so whether you're on the northern side of that or southern side of that, um, there's just so many wonderful birds at different elevations in the Andes Mountains. And uh, I haven't birded around Europe very much, and that's been by design, so I've kind of saved Europe to travel to um, with my spouse, and so I'll, I know that I have birds in years to come as I travel and explore uh, the Alps and some of the beautiful mountains of Europe. What would you say is like the favorite bird or an ultimate bird, or whether it was your big year or at any point that you'd say this is this is the bird I I would hang a picture of on the wall? Yeah, for sure. There's um, I grew up reading like zoo books and animal facts on file, just lots of different hard copy literature about birds. And one bird that captivated my imagination from a really early age was the harpy eagle. So that's that's been a bird that I've dreamed my whole life of seeing. And um, I guess I'm, I'm not really a bird lister, although I've done a big year, like lists are just kind of how I keep track of what I have seen. Mm-hmm. But as far as making room around my life to see a certain bird, I'm not that type of lister, but I am that type of lister for um, inexperience. So like my, my bucket list or my list of experiences I hope to have um, that I kind of plan my travel and my birding around. And doing a big year was on that list. So mm-hmm. I've, I've always wanted to see a harpy eagle. And January 1st of 2018, I made that happen. So I flew to Peru and um, I found... I saw found a harp eagle in the Peruvian Amazon, which was just a, a highlight birding experience for my life, to be able to not have a guide and not have anybody else in that uh, in the rainforest with me, just waking up early one morning and going for a walk and finding a harp eagle was uh, a picture that I have hanging on my wall at home, to put it back in your own words. That is, for me, uh, a similar thing. Many times, especially during a big year, when you see a really rare bird and there's nobody there and you're the only one and it's a a real rush but then you think you want to high five someone and there's nobody there to do it and uh and yet you have that satisfaction of having done it by yourself and for me because I spent my first year birding with guides taking me to all the places and hot spots being able to do the Canada big year with nobody at my side a lot of times bird that I was probably the one I was most excited to see during the course of the year was the flammulated owl and I found one in British Columbia and that's the one that I'm going to hang on the wall this year. So what did doing a big year teach you about yourself and birding and how did it influence the way you spend your life now? Great question. So I learned a lot about myself doing a big year. i Definitely was able to polish and refine some of my self-reliance skills um, because not having a co-pilot to drive with, I had to I had to navigate, I had to plan my travel, I had to figure out what birds to see where, 
a lot of the time I had to figure out how to not just buy food, but buy food affordably. Mm-hmm. So I was making eating choices on my own. I was my own travel agent, my own chef, um, my own navigator. And so I really learned a lot of self-reliance and uh, multitasking abilities, mm-hmm. as well as just being comfortable being alone. Mm-hmm. And that's something now uh, in this day and age with the omnip- omnipresence of technology, it's really difficult for people to unplug and be alone with their own thoughts. Mm-hmm. And that can be a scary thing. And I, I spent the first six months or so of the year um, putting, I just stuck a piece of tape over my radio button and, and said I refused to listen to the radio. Mm-hmm. Mostly it was an election year, and so a lot of what was being discussed on you know talk radio was all about Donald Trump and Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton. But I, I tuned out and just spent time driving alone with my own thoughts, and that was such a productive experience for me, embracing that discomfort of really having that inner dialogue and mm-hmm. being comfortable with myself and my thoughts as I navigated this uncertainty in my life with losing a job, losing a girlfriend, um, spending my money on gas, which I was just watching drain my bank account as I'm putting on, you know, 10, 15, 20,000 miles mm-hmm. um, on my car in the first couple of months and knowing that, you know, double that or triple that and that's the year. So there's a lot of uncertainty, but um, I'd say I definitely learned a lot of resilience and self-reliance and comfort with myself and knowing who I am and what I stand for and how I am as a birder and as a learner and as a teacher. And so it really helped um, kind of trial by fire, made me a better version of myself. And that's impacted me every single day following um, that big year. So it's definitely, it was an investment in myself and my skills. And I came out of my big year, went back to teaching and was able to be a professional birding guide until COVID hit. Mm-hmm. So I guided for a number of different companies and uh, privately for a number of years and really enjoyed that. And I'd say that was thanks to the experience I gained and the familiarity with places all over North America in during 2016. So huge, huge investment, but also a, it paid huge dividends uh, and during a big year. Something that uh, I've talked to other young birders about is that sometimes the best education you get in life is not in the classroom, but in your own adventure and journey doing something like a big year. And I think there's not a lot of things like birding that take you to so many different places uh, with so many different goals and trials and the education you get and the fun of self-discovery. I don't think there's very many things you can do like birding that will give you all that, especially in the course of one year during a big year. I agree. You summed it up perfectly. This has been uh, an exciting part of your life, and uh, I hope that the rest of your lifetime experience just keeps building on what you've done. It certainly has done that for me. best thing I did during my travel across Canada was also to turn off the radio and ignore news. And what I discovered and what you probably discovered is the world goes on just fine without knowing any of that. And your life goes on just yep. just as well, if not better, is one of the great things I think about doing something like a big year, whether it's 
US, ABA, Canada, or just a county big year, you get to focus on just what's in front of you, what's ahead of you, and really just learning who you are and also learning about the people in your birding orbit who you discover are some of the nicest, most helpful people you'll ever meet in your life. Definitely. It's an amazing community. Now with the social media network, it certainly makes it easier and more fun to get to some of these rarities that you may never have heard of before. Certainly the experience of the sea eagle in Canada, the birding community was in constant touch with me. Every time a sighting of the sea eagle was reported i would get five or six emails or texts saying the seagull's here the seagull's there and i i chased it three times in 2022 until november of this year on my fourth trip finally got to see it i even made a christmas ornament of it to hang on my christmas tree to celebrate it well it's been fantastic talking to you it was great meeting you back in 2016 I hope that you have continued success. I certainly hope that if I come out to the West Coast, we can get together and maybe go see a whooper swan together. Let me know. I, I know where there's one. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. That makes my life a lot more fulfilling to talk to some of the birders that have lived some of the things that I have over the course of the last 10 years. Well, thanks so much, Robert. It's great to be here and look forward to staying in touch with you in the future. Absolutely. Well, thanks again to Christian for taking the time to chat this week. Well, it was actually several weeks ago, but I just got to it now. And I still haven't made plans yet to go to Washington to see the whooper swan or common crane, but they are still there. I guess I'm still recovering from all the travel last year. Either way, anywho, and such is life. Our next episode, for sure, really, will feature Kaya Jasper as we talk about his Ontario record-breaking big year. In future episodes, we will talk to a few other birders who did Ontario big years and Karen Miller, who still has the all-time record for a New Brunswick, Canada big year. Thanks for joining me from my basement studio with my big year poster right behind me in the far-off land of Brantford. As I record this, the sun is shining and the birds are returning from the south. We'll all be looking forward to warmer weather and spring migration here in southern Ontario. Take care and come back soon to the Big Ear Podcast.